Before midnight tonight, the U.S. Supreme Court must decide whether to end access to the abortion drug mifepristone, what the court is weighing and what the consequences could be regardless of the decision coming up. It's Friday, April 21st, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead with news, the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas failed to disclose gifts of vacations, luxury expenses, and business transactions. There's new scrutiny on the ethics governing the court. The White House says there are no plans to evacuate all Americans in Sudan as the fighting there tips into a second week. And Twitter once muzzled Russian and Chinese state propaganda. That's now over. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. In the coming hours, the U.S. Supreme Court weighs in on the legal battle over a widely used abortion pill less than a year after the court's conservative supermajority struck down Roe v. Wade. The high court's given itself until midnight to decide whether or not to block access to mifepristone while the FDA's approval of the drug from over 20 years ago is litigated. The Sudanese army has announced it's observing a three-day ceasefire this coming hours after the rival RSF said it was declaring a three-day truce to allow for the celebration of the end of Ramadan. Both sides have been locked in vicious fighting for control of the country for roughly a week with fighting in the country's capital. BBC's Mohamed Hashim has the latest. A lot of people who are trying to escape the city to the safety of, of the nearby regions are all trapped because there is heavy and intense fighting. Today, for example, there is a road connecting Khartoum to Wad Madani, which is 180 kilometers southeast of, of Khartoum. There is very heavy fighting between the army and units of the RSF there. That's the BBC's Mohanad Hashim reporting. The White House says it's creating an Office of Environmental Justice intended to better protect communities disproportionately affected by pollution and climate change. President Biden has yet to formally announce his bid for re-election, but he is touting his administration's climate actions today while accusing Republicans of undermining them. Two years, in two years, we're making real progress on the most ambitious environmental justice agenda in history. And with this executive order, we'll go even further. Vice President Kamala Harris has gone to Miami to announce more than $500 million in climate action investments. Republicans, meanwhile, are confronting Biden on spending, warning that federal spending cuts will need to accompany an increase in the debt limit. The last eight years have been the warmest eight years on record, according to a report from the World Meteorological Organization. This year is likely to continue that trend. Here's NPR's Lauren Summer. Last year was about two degrees Fahrenheit hotter on average than pre-industrial times. That's despite it being a La Nina year, when global temperatures are cooler on average due to that seasonal weather pattern. This year, weather experts are predicting a shift to El Nino, which usually means hotter temperatures. That will likely continue the record-setting warming trend. The WMO also found the pace of sea level rise has doubled compared to the 1990s, as hotter ocean water expands and glaciers and ice sheets melt. Lauren Summer, NPR News. At last check on Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 22 points to 33,808. The S&P had risen three points and the Nasdaq was up 12. 
From Washington, this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. We're waiting for the U.S. Supreme Court's decision on the abortion drug mifepristone. The high court has said it will rule by the end of the day today on access to the pill that's used in medical abortions. Christy Monast is executive director for HealthQ. That's a reproductive health clinic serving the Lawrence area. We know that we're still going to be providing abortion services. We know that we're still going to be providing medication abortions. We don't know exactly how that's going to look. Manas tells WBR's Radio Boston she's frustrated the legal tussle is distracting staff from providing critical care to their patients. Earlier this month, Governor Maura Healey signed an executive order that confirms the drug and medical abortion are protected here under state law. The Bristol County Sheriff's Office says prisoners in the county jail in Dartmouth caused a disturbance today when the staff attempted to move them to another part of the facility. It says it's needed to clear an area to make renovations that will make the jail safer for inmates who might be suicidal. A corrections union official says efforts are still underway to regain control of the units. No other information is available. Video from outside the jail earlier today showed a fire extinguisher being sprayed out a window toward officials who were standing outside the building. The head of the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce is applauding Governor Healy's new appointments to the MBTA board. Jim Rooney says the decision to name former T General Manager Thomas Glynn as the new board chair will bring fresh leadership. I'm a realist, and I do know, given the hole that's been dug at the T, that there's a lot of work to do, and people shouldn't expect miracles out of any one of these people, but they are good choices and people that I certainly have confidence in. Healy also chose former State Senator Tom McGee and commercial banker Eric Goodwine to replace appointees of former Governor Baker. Rooney says all three will bring skills needed to improve the struggling transit system. And Boston is expanding its food waste curbside collection program. Mayor Michelle Wu announced today the service will be made available to 30,000 households. Since the program launched last summer, 10,000 homes have been able to get rid of food waste by leaving it in a bag outside on the curb to be picked up. It's turned into renewable electricity and into compost. 53 degrees now, a lovely Friday afternoon. Increasing clouds overnight tonight, lows about 46. Should be mostly cloudy tomorrow, around 56 degrees. High of about 54 on Sunday. Showers, maybe some thunderstorms as well. This is WBUR. It's 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Happy Friday. We've got a great show lined up for you today, including developments at Twitter, developments that are deeper than blue check marks, and later, new music from guitar virtuosos Rodrigo y Gabriela. But we start today with what ethics experts are calling a double standard for Supreme Court justices. The highest court in the country does not have a code of ethics. And with recent news that Justice Clarence Thomas failed to disclose multiple gifts and transactions, that lack of guiding principles is raising scrutiny. That's because federal workers do face a lot of rules and regulations on and off the job. Here to help us understand this is NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Hey, Domenico. Hey, Scott. 
So let's start with the basics. What are the ethics rules that federal workers have to follow, and how is that different from Supreme Court justices? Well, there's a lot of them, and they're slightly different across uh, different agencies. You know, the Office of Government Ethics oversees ethical standards for all of the executive branch's employees, and we're talking about everyone from census workers up to the President of the United States. Mm -hmm. They have 14 guiding general principles that they put forth, and first is employees being expected to, quote, place loyalty to the Constitution, the laws, and ethical principles principles above private gain. The Supreme Court, though, as you said, has no such guiding principles. There's no ethics code. But the nine justices are required uh, by the same ethics law to submit public financial disclosures. That includes gifts over a few hundred dollars. If they don't, they can face criminal charges or stiff hmm. civil penalties. And that's where watchdogs come in and who are raising you know, major questions about Justice Clarence Thomas. Okay, so let's recap here. Thomas did not disclose gifts of luxury vacations, overnight stays, trips on a private jet, all of these certainly worth more than a few hundred dollars. (laughs) These all came from a conservative billionaire over the course of many, many years. So is there any talk of these criminal or civil penalties? It's complicated. Two nonpartisan watchdog groups who I talked to this week, the Project on Government Oversight and the Campaign Legal Center, both believe there's enough evidence to do so. They've written actually long letters urging the Department of Justice to pursue action. They say that even if Thomas was found guilty civilly and wasn't pursued criminally, he could face penalties that reach close to a million dollars. That's because there's a more than $70,000 penalty for each omission if left out purposefully. And each vacation, there could be multiple violations. Over years, that adds up pretty fast. But they're not confident Thomas is going to face any consequences. And that's because of what they see as a double standard, one for the high profile and well-connected, another for everyone else. Here's Walter Schaub, who used to run the Office of Government Oversight and is now a senior fellow at the Project on Government Oversight. The Department of Justice has shown a real unwillingness to hold the top officials in government to the same standard it holds lower level officials to. And if you think about it, that's government ethics standing on its head because the higher up you go and the more power you have to do harm, the more you should be held accountable because the stakes are so much greater. And that's the point that, you know, Schaub really is stressing here, who was head of Office of Government Ethics. You know, for his part, Thomas says that he didn't know he had to disclose these gifts because they're from someone he calls a personal friend. Hmm. But he'll do so in the future. Now, these watchdog groups don't buy that. They point to the fact that Thomas used to declare these kinds of gifts for years until a 2004 LA Times article spotlighted the depths of Thomas's gifts that were more than almost any other justice. And real quick, any action in Congress that's important to look at here? You know, it's unlikely Democratic Senate Judiciary Chairman Dick Durbin has asked uh, Chief Justice John Roberts to testify early next month. Republicans not going along to Mm -hmm. pressure him. That's Domenico Montanaro. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Okay, we've talked a lot about California's record-setting and devastating year of rain so far, but what about the benefit of all that water? NPR's Nathan Rott was lucky enough to see it. Gabe Garcia and John Kelly almost passed the dirt road we're looking for. With all of the new growth on the valley floor, it's easy to miss. So just for perspective, last year this area was like it was just mowed. No vegetation coverage, almost like, you know, some spots just dirt. This year, the valley floor, the Tembler Range to the north, the Calientes to the south, nearly everything at Carrizo Plain National Monument is coated in wildflowers. Yellow, purple, orange, and blue. 
We step out of the truck into a sea of them, horizon to horizon. Garcia and Kelly, who help manage this area for the Bureau of Land Management, step into a cluster of the flowers. We've got the facilia, the purple. We've got the gold fields, which are these. Bright yellow and petite. So these smaller flowers yeah. are the gold fields. And then these other ones are the hillsides daisies. And then the ones with the white, these are what, the tidy tips? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How many different types of flowers grow out here? There's so many. Hundreds of species between, between the flowers and the grasses and the plants. And right now, all of them are in rare form. There's no technical definition for the term super bloom. And really, there's no way to adequately describe it. It's breathtakingly beautiful and objectively sublime. It even sounds peaceful. This is one of the bright sides to California's monstrously wet winter. Places that just months ago were in extreme drought are now awash in water. So too, sadly, are towns, people, dairy farms, and almond orchards. You know, when we see water spread across the landscape as you're driving through the Central Valleys, you think of this as a really negative thing. Carson Jeffries is a researcher at the University of California Davis's Center for Watershed Sciences. Yet, there are so many benefits that happen because of it. For Jeffries, who focuses on salmon, the benefit is water-filled floodways, which provide roughly 100 times more fish food than a normal river. It is absolutely unbelievable the absolute gigantic fish that are coming off of the floodplains right now. They are some of the biggest, fattest fish we've ever seen anytime. Historically, before most of this region was engineered with dams and canals, California's Central Valley would flood frequently. Snowmelt from the mountains would spread out across the valley floor coalescing in basins and the few remaining wetlands on the landscape, like this one northeast of Bakersfield. You guys really letting us know, huh? Definitely. Matt Kaminsky is a biologist with Ducks Unlimited. Avocets and then black net stilts, the ones with the roof its heads out there. This wetland sandwiched between a dairy farm and alfalfa fields is what's known as a duck club an ecosystem maintained by conservation easements and duck hunters. The Central Valley is part of the Pacific Flyway, a major migratory path for waterfowl and birds. These are important staging grounds for these birds as they migrate through. In dry years, Kaminsky says, many of these wetland complexes don't receive any water from the spring runoff. Agriculture has a higher priority. So these wetlands are generally sustained by landowners pumping groundwater to the surface. This year, though, they're taking all of the water they can get, alleviating flood risks for nearby towns and farms. Driving in Kaminsky's truck along the top of a steep levee, he points to a breach in the canal wall. The crop fields behind are inundated with water and chirping birds. Years like this, he says, awful as they are for some. It really gives you an opportunity to look back in time and sort of see what you know this area used to look like. And he says there's a beauty in that, too. Nathan Rott, NPR News, California's Central Valley. And if you want to see photos of the superbloom and recharged wetlands, check out the story on NPR.org. Sudan's army has agreed to a three-day truce to fighting in and around the capital city, Khartoum. Earlier ceasefires between the army and the paramilitary rapid support forces over the past week have quickly collapsed, and there are signs this one may collapse as well. The U.S. is drawing up evacuation plans to get its embassy staff out of the country if the situation deteriorates further. The plans do not include American civilians, NPR's Jackie Northam reports. 
Fierce fighting between Sudan's warring factions has left hundreds of people dead. There are an increasing number of attacks against Westerners, UN personnel, aid workers, and diplomats. The State Department is sending out warnings to U.S. citizens in Sudan. Here's spokesperson Vedant Patel. We have been uh, very clear about the need to, for American citizens to remain indoors, to stay off the roads, to shelter in place, and to avoid traveling to the U.S. Embassy at this time. The State Department has set up a conflict task force for Sudan to deal with the crisis. That includes planning for an evacuation. It's been coordinating with the Pentagon, which has deployed more forces to nearby Djibouti. How to get embassy staff out is the issue. One option, if this ceasefire holds, is to arrange a convoy to go overland to Egypt. Another is by helicopter off the top of the embassy. This administration cannot have another botched American evacuation. Cameron Hudson is an East Africa specialist at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a former diplomat who covered Sudan. He says the specter of the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021 looms large, and the administration wants to make sure that doesn't happen again. I think that there's a lot of domestic politics at play here, right? Nobody in the department wants a, a situation where we actually have an American embassy itself under siege. And if one American diplomat dies in this country, then there's going to be you know, serious hell to pay. And I think that the Biden administration understands that. The administration has also made clear that its focus is on embassy staff, and U.S. citizens will have to make their own arrangements. National Security Spokesperson John Kirby says the State Department has sent out numerous advisories telling American citizens not to travel to Sudan or to get out if they're already there. It is not standard practice for the United States to evacuate all American citizens living abroad. And, and again, uh, given all the warnings that we have, we have provided, there should be no expectation uh, that the United States would be able to facilitate uh, an evacuation using either military or commercial aircraft in a potentially non-permissive environment. There's an estimated 16,000 American citizens in Sudan, and the situation is growing desperate. There are shortages of food and water, and the security situation is increasingly precarious. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Washington. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered in about 15 minutes, the story of an ancient Mayan discovery in Mexico. On Wall Street, stocks had a kind of lazy day today with little change by the end of the session. The Dow, the S&P and Nasdaq all gained about a tenth of a percent. For the Dow, it was the end of a four-week win streak. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. And Dedham Community Theater, an independent cinema in historic Dedham Square, now showing somewhere in Queens and showing up. Showtimes at DedhamCommunityTheater.com. The state's unemployment rate is falling. The Massachusetts Office of Labor and Workforce Development say the rate is now 3.5%. That's down from 3.7% in February. The Bureau of Labor Statistics also reports today the state's economy added 16,000 jobs last month. The biggest job growth was in leisure and hospitality, education, and in health care. 
The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Waterstone, a new luxury, independent, and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining on Watertown Street in Lexington, waterstonelexington.com. Bruins and Celtics return to playoff action tonight. The Bees are in Florida to face the Panthers in Game 3 of their first-round playoff series. Celtics are in Atlanta to play the Hawks. Boston leads that series two games to zero. In the forecast, some clouds moving in overnight tonight. Temperatures down in the mid-40s. Tomorrow should be cloudy, around 56 for a high. And for Sunday, highs in the mid-50s again. Showers, maybe a thunderstorm as well. This is WBUR. It's 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Scott Detrow. The premise behind a smart gun is pretty simple. It uses technology similar to what's in your smartphone so that only a registered user can unlock the weapon and fire it. Developing a smart gun that works, though, has been tricky. But now a Colorado startup says it's bringing a smart gun to the market. NPR Justice correspondent Ryan Lucas looked into it and has this story, which, a quick warning, will include the sound of gunshots. The general idea of a smart gun has been around for decades. One even makes an appearance in the 2012 James Bond film, Skyfall. Also PPKS 9mm short. There's a microdermal sensor in the grip. It's been coded to your palm print so only you can fire it. There's the movies, though, and then there's the real world. And in the real world, the technological challenges, as well as some political ones have meant that smart guns haven't become a reality. But that may be about to change, because a Colorado startup called BioFire says it has developed a viable and reliable smart gun for market. The company's founder and CEO is 26-year-old Kai Klepfer. The event that really kicked off my involvement in thinking about smart guns and thinking about how technology could be applied to gun safety was the Aurora Theater shooting. That shooting at a midnight screening of a Batman movie killed 12 people and wounded dozens more. Klepfer was 15 years old at the time and lived about a half-hour drive from Aurora. He says that back then, he knew about gun violence, but it had never hit so close to home. And so, as a kid with an interest in engineering, he wondered whether there was a technological solution that could help curb gun violence. I set it on a smart gun, which is basically you know, a firearm that's always locked by default, but instantly accessible to the user. So Klepfer got to work trying to engineer one as a science fair project. Now, 11 years later, that science fair project has morphed into BioFire, a company with 40 employees and $30 million in venture capital funding. And last week, the company became the first to offer for sale a smart gun that uses biometrics, in this case, facial recognition and fingerprint verification, so that only a verified user can fire it. That journey from science fair project to firearms manufacturer has been a long one. At BioFire's headquarters outside Denver, there's a hallway that holds five illuminated glass cases each holding a prototype of Klepfer's smart gun. This is a nice little kind of visual chronology of the different uh, like key milestones. Again, we've built hundreds of prototypes in hundreds of generations. And this is the science fair model. But, and this is the science fair model. So this is, this is actually It is, in fact, the, the final prototype from the science fair, he says. As you can tell, it's not actually a gun, right? Um, I wasn't allowed to work on firearms for the science fair. and would have gotten me kicked out, actually. Instead, he worked on what was basically a 3D printed plastic model. 
one in the glass display case here. It looks like a plastic gun with the top half missing, but on the side of the gun grip is his technological leap. That's the, the fingerprint yep. sensor right there. Big on fingerprint the, sensor there on the side. If you look at that, it looks very kind of old school, right? Um, back in 2013, that was the state of the art, right? That was the best fingerprint sensor you could buy. In Klepfer's own telling, that science fair model barely worked. But the engineering and analysis that went into it still won him first place at an international science fair in engineering. He spent some of his prize winnings on a bicycle. He was, after all, still just a high school kid. But he kept tinkering away on his smart gun idea. And with $50,000 in grant money, he managed to engineer a new prototype, one that actually fired. What he did, in essence, was meld a fingerprint sensor onto the grip of a Glock handgun. It was rudimentary, and it wasn't reliable, but it did work for the most part. It was very clear that taking Glocks and buying off-the-shelf firearms and drilling holes in them uh, is not a good way to build a reliable product. After a short stint at MIT, Klepfer dropped out to focus on BioFire. His team designed and built hundreds of prototypes as they tried to meld old-school gunsmithing with the latest in cutting-edge electronics. And it's here at its Colorado headquarters in a nondescript office building off a highway that it now does all of its research and development and testing. So these over here, these are our thermal chambers. Um, and so basically both of these, uh, what they allow us to do is simulate all sorts of different environmental conditions uh, without having to actually go to those different environments, right? So if that we sort of testing is critical really to ensure that a gun loaded with electronics works in a hot and humid environment, as well as in the rain or the freezing cold. Hey guys. Through a door, there's a machine shop. Dave here is our operator who's in charge of this piece of equipment. I'm not allowed to touch it or even look at it funny because I might break it. But this lets us do like complex like machining operations, like manufacturing slides and barrels, uh, largely in-house. The machine looks like a giant metal booth with two small sliding glass doors. Inside, small hoses spray coolant as the machine whittles a gun stock down to the precise size. <laughs> Out back in the company's in-house firing range, Klepfer sets a heavy-duty black plastic case on a table. He opens it and takes out the latest model of BioFire smart gun. It looks like a handgun, but one out of a futuristic movie. On the grip, right where your middle finger rests when holding the gun, is a small fingerprint sensor. And on the back is a 3D facial recognition sensor. Having both biometrics, Klepfer says, makes it more reliable. The two combined work in pretty much any environmental conditions, any environment, any grip style, things like that. In this demo, Klepfer is the only person authorized to use the gun. As soon as he picks it up, a green light on the sight and on the back of the gun turns on, letting him know that it recognizes him and is unlocked. So, pretty simple. Uh, this is a BioFire magazine. Uh, it works just like any other magazine. Um, so, I'll load the firearm here. So the firearm's now loaded. You'll see, even as I was starting to handle that, it had already unlocked. And so, I get up on target. So you just fired it? I just fired it, yep. You're the only registered user. I am not registered to it. I'm not an authorized user, but I'm gonna walk over to it and see if this works. So I'm walking over to it, pick it up. It recognizes that someone's touching it, but the white light is on, it's not green. I point it down range. I pull the trigger and nothing. Okay, set it back down. And then I can pick this right back up if you wanna see that. Yeah. And then, again, it'll go green, obviously. The gun holds a charge for months, he says. And it comes with a smart screen charging dock, which is also how you add authorized users. Previous attempts at a reliable smart gun have failed. Smith & Wesson, for example, started its smart gun development years ago 
in the face of fierce NRA-led opposition. The NRA, for the record, doesn't oppose smart guns. It opposes anything that would mandate smart gun technology. A German company called Armatex brought a gun to market in 2014 that used a radio frequency watch to unlock the weapon, but it faced technical troubles as well as political blowback. This time may be different, says Nick Suplina from the gun control group Everytown. He's seen the BioFire smart gun in action, and he says it does what previous attempts at a smart gun have not. It works. But he cautions that smart guns also aren't going to end the epidemic of gun violence in America. Even if widely introduced, smart guns only solve part of the problem of gun violence in the United States. One thing that they could help with, though, is preventing unintentional shootings involving children. Firearms are not the leading cause of death among children and teens. A smart gun would prevent a child from successfully firing uh, a weapon that they're not authorized uh, to access. And and that's really a, a promising development. Smart guns could also help tamp down on accidents and suicides, the latter of which makes up more than half of all gun deaths in the U.S. each year. For his part, Klepfer acknowledges that his smart gun wouldn't have prevented the mass shooting in Aurora more than a decade ago, or more recent ones in Tennessee and Kentucky. There are no total solutions, he says. My goal is I want to have an incremental positive impact on sort of the uniquely American challenge of of gun deaths. He thinks his smart gun can do just that. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, outside Denver, Colorado. This is NPR News. Coming up on 90.9 WBUR, a new data show that Russian and Chinese state propaganda outlets on Twitter are seeing more followers and higher engagement. That story in about five minutes. Beautiful afternoon and evening. We should have a few clouds around tonight down in the mid-40s. Weekend's looking kind of gray. Tomorrow, heavy on the clouds. Windy, about as mild as today has been. Highs in the mid-50s. Sunday should be the wetter day. Showers, some steady rain in the afternoon. Gusty winds. Highs in the mid-50s. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative. Your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. And the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. TheMusicEmporium.com. As he grew up in Boston, Dennis Lehane says he saw women he never saw in books or movies. They were capable of going toe-to-toe with a man in a fistfight. That wasn't saying they'd win, but they were capable of doing it. Dennis Lehane on his new novel, Small Mercies, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The Pentagon says U.S. troops will begin training Ukrainian forces in the coming weeks on how to use and maintain 31 Abrams battle tanks to speed up efforts to get them on the battlefield as soon as possible. That announcement today comes as defense officials from the U.S. and Europe meet in Germany to coordinate the delivery of weapons and equipment to Ukraine. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin told reporters at the Ramstein Air Base today The U.S. remains committed to supporting Ukraine's fight for freedom against Russia's illegal invasion. I am confident that this equipment and the training that accompanied it will put Ukraine's forces in a position to continue to succeed on the battlefield. 
Representatives from about 50 nations gathered for the U.S.-led meeting of what's being called the Ukraine Defense Contact Group. The White House says it's reviewing a plan from House Republicans to raise the nation's debt ceiling in exchange for cuts in government uh, spending programs. NPR's Windsor Johnston has the latest. The Biden administration has repeatedly argued against Republican attempts to attach cuts in government spending to legislation that would raise the debt ceiling. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the administration is reviewing the bill, but so far doesn't like what Republicans have put on the table. Right now, what we are, what we see with the 22 percent spending cuts that they put forward, it's going to hurt education, it's going to hurt veterans, veterans medical medical care, Meals on Wheels, food safety, but we're going to take a closer look. We're going to analyze that. House Republicans are aiming to vote on the measure by as early as next week. But then it would be on to the Senate, where Democrats hold a narrow majority. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Stocks finish modestly higher to end the week on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Prison guards appear to be making progress as they try to regain control of the Bristol County Jail and House of Correction after a prisoner disturbance today. Video footage from television news helicopters show prisoners handcuffed and being guarded in a fenced-in yard at the facility in Dartmouth. As WBUR's Deborah Becker reports, the incident began this morning after some of those in custody refused to move from their cells. A spokesperson for Bristol County Sheriff Paul Harrow says prisoners refused to move as part of the sheriff's efforts to prevent suicides. Harrow's been making improvements because his facilities have a suicide rate three times the national average. Earlier this month, a consultant recommended moving some units to reduce the risk of suicide. The State Correction Officers Union says a large-scale disturbance at the jail caused officers to leave for their own safety and no injuries are reported by either officers or prisoners. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Maintenance projects on the T will disrupt some service this weekend. On the Red Line, shuttle buses will replace trains between Kendall MIT and JFK UMass stations tomorrow and Sunday. On the Haverhill commuter rail line, buses will replace trains between Haverhill and Reading starting tomorrow for the next two weeks. On the Newburyport-Rockport line, shuttle buses will be in place between Rockport and West Gloucester starting tomorrow and lasting for three weeks. Tomorrow is Earth Day, and the National Park System is celebrating by waiving fees to parks in Massachusetts and nationwide. Most national sites in the state are already free, but Lowell National Historic Park in in, in Lowell will be among those to be free for the day. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. Enjoy the sunshine that's left. Some clouds roll in tonight. More over the weekend. Tonight should be breezy, down around 43 degrees. And then for tomorrow, lots of clouds, windy, about as mild as today in the mid-50s. Then for Sunday, should be showery, some heavy rains in the afternoon, gusty winds, highs again in the mid-50s. 53 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work with online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. And from Peacock, 
with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streaming now on Peacock. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. Archaeologists have made a huge new discovery in the Mayan city of Chichen Itza. In a few minutes, I'll talk to one of the experts who's trying to figure out what it means. Online, users have been seeing a lot of changes on Twitter recently, like losing their beloved blue check marks. But here's one big change that you might not have noticed that has huge, very real implications for people all around the world, whether they use the platform or not. Twitter just lifted its barriers on state media accounts for Russia, China, and Iran. NPR's Derek Kerr looked into how government propaganda is spreading as a result and joins us now to talk about it. Hey, Dara. Hello. So, I mean, I can hear people saying, all right, here we go. Another day, another story of chaos at Twitter. But really, this latest change goes well beyond just some new company drama at Twitter, right? Yeah, it does. You know, ever since billionaire Elon Musk took over, it's been one event after another. But here's one troubling thing I just discovered about propaganda and misinformation on the platform. I spoke to two former employees who told me that Twitter made the deliberate decision to stop its policy called, quote, visibility filtering on state media accounts in Russia, China, and Iran. In the past, that policy basically made those government accounts hard to search for and it limited their tweets. These employees said Twitter stopped that policy over the last few weeks, so we're already seeing the effects. Okay, and how are the effects playing out? Well, after I spoke to the employees, I reached out to the Atlantic Council, which is a U.S. think tank, and asked them to take a closer look at what was happening, and they compiled tens of thousands of tweets and found that state media accounts in Russia, China, and Iran all saw significant spikes in followers and user engagement right around the end of March. Those surges happened after months of those accounts actually losing followers. So this suggests the effect was substantial. And now the fear is that those state media accounts can start spreading virally. And this could lead to more government propaganda and misinformation across the platform. Right. And I mean, it's only been a few weeks since this specific change, but are we already seeing instances of misinformation spreading? Yeah, so we haven't really studied the full impact of this, but we are starting to see examples. Um, Dmitry Medvedev, who's high up in the Russian government, posted a tweet laced with genocidal language about Ukraine, and that got many thousands of retweets. The former employee I spoke to said Medvedev's account was previously limited. So probably we wouldn't have seen this just a few months ago. When a Twitter user asked Musk about the appropriateness of that tweet, Musk said, quote, let people decide for themselves. Alyssa Kahn, the Atlantic Council researcher who looked into this, said a lot of the responsibility rests with Musk. When we have that public square in, you know, what is effectively a one man's private billionaire playground, I think things like this can happen. Okay, so Musk sounds completely uninterested in intervening here. Is there any chance that Twitter could change this policy? It's not looking good. So Twitter didn't actually get back to me beyond sending the poop emoji, which is its standard response to all press requests. 
But it's important to think about the implications of the removal of this visibility filtering. Twitter is actually banned in Russia, China, and Iran, but the governments run dozens of accounts in several languages to spread their messages worldwide. People who live in those countries aren't allowed to use Twitter, so their voices are often drowned out and the flow of information skews towards the government. Other researchers I spoke to said this also isn't just about making the government look good or activists look bad. It could also add to the spread of misinformation about things like COVID, and it could worsen divisions between governments like those between China and Taiwan and Russia and Ukraine. That is NPR's Dara Kerr. Thank you so much, Dara. Thank you. The Mayan city of Chichen Itza in Mexico is one of the most popular ancient sites in the world. It's seen countless visitors over the years, and yet it still holds some exciting surprises. Archaeologists there recently uncovered a stone disc etched with two figures playing a popular Mesoamerican ball game. At more than 100 pounds, it's massive, and at more than 1,000 years old, it's a bit mysterious. For more on this discovery, let's talk to David Stewart. He is a professor at the University of Texas at Austin and an expert in Mayan culture, and he's helping decipher the hieroglyphs carved into the stone. David, welcome to the show. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm good. I mean, I've been looking at some of the pictures of the stone. It looks pretty worn down, which makes sense, but the carvings are still pretty distinct. What are you seeing when you look at it? You know, as you say, it's a little bit eroded, and yeah, we do expect that for something that's over a thousand years old or so. But there are some cool details. One of the things that really stands out to me is it actually has an inscription. It has a date. It has some probably some names and things like that. And these are little valuable parts of history. Do we know what it says? Well, this stone is of a certain kind that the ancient Maya carved for their ball courts for these ceremonial ball games. Mm -hmm. And we have similar examples from other places. And, and so the inscription no doubt talks about the dedication of one of these ball courts. Now, there is a really interesting thing about this inscription, which is because of its date, which means it's, it's rather late in Maya history, from about the year 1000, it's in a funny font, you yeah. might say. It's in a style that makes it a bit hard for us to read. Interesting. And so I wish I could just read it off to you and tell you exactly what it says, but it's really important to see that there's something we can still kind of work on and try to crack. I think there's a, a lot of work still to be done. So I saw this disc described as, you know, some articles about it described it as almost like a first down marker in football today. Others said it was more like a goal post. Do you have a sense of how this was used in the game? And can you tell us what we know about this game based on other digs? Yeah, so this, we think it was used perhaps for measurement purposes, actual marker in a ball court. We're not exactly sure where it was set originally, so it's a little hard to say. But one of the things that's a real head-scratcher for us is actually how the game was played. We don't know really anything about the actual rules and performance of the game itself, except from some scraps of information from, you know, the time the Spanish arrived in Mexico. They saw the game being played and gave us a few clues about it. But the Maya had their own way of doing it. You know, it was clearly a really important kind of game for politics for kind of religious performances and things like that. They integrated the game into a lot of this pageantry that they had. 
you spend so much time studying this. There are so many unknowns. If you could magically learn one thing about the civilization, what, what would it be to, to help unlock all the things that you're trying to figure out through findings? Well, that's a great question. You know, when we read their ancient history, we're reading their voice from that time, right? And and we're reading really about the kings and the queens and the 1%, you yeah. might say, of Maya society. I wish we could learn more from the wider spectrum of society. I wish they had written down more about the whole kind of makeup of, of their uh, politics and society. It's David Stewart, professor at the University of Texas and an expert in Mayan culture. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The Netflix dating series Indian Matchmaking returns for a third season today, three years after starting an international debate about arranged marriage. NPR TV critic Eric Degen spoke with the show's creator to learn how an Oscar-nominated documentarian developed a show that kick-started a cultural conversation. Smriti Mundra says it took 10 years to get Indian Matchmaking made. She first began pitching the show to production companies in the late 2000s, but Mundra says she often got the same answer. You know, the question was like, does she ever work with, like, Americans? Yes, she does work with Americans. They just happen to be Indian Americans. The she in question is matchmaker Seema Taparia, who's shown traveling between Mumbai and the U.S. to suggest suitable romantic matches for single people with their family's involvement. In the show's 2020 debut, Taparia who encourages clients to call her Seema Auntie, explain the job of a matchmaker. In India, we don't say arranged marriage. There is marriage and then love marriage. The two families have their reputation and many millions of dollars at stake. So the parents guide their children, and that is the work of a matchmaker. In the show's current season, she heads to London, where she meets Priya, a 35-year-old woman with a particular challenge in dating. I think sometimes guys can feel a little bit... Um, intimidated and a little bit like um, like you're broken. Just because you're divorced, you're broken. Critics have said Indian matchmaking glosses over important problems in the arranged marriage system, normalizing preferences for lighter-skinned partners, discrimination through the caste system, and focusing on Taparia's wealthy, mostly Hindu clientele. But Mundra says the show does recognize those issues. It would have been very easy to have scrubbed out references to skin color or religion or caste or what have you, but it, it, it wouldn't feel authentic. Mundra first met Taparia when she used her services many years ago, but she discovered a problem. All I was seeing was the pressure. All I was hearing was, I'm incomplete unless I check this box and achieve this thing. She eventually walked away from the process to choose her own husband. Mundra calls herself a proud Nepo baby. Her father was Jag Mundra, a native of India who came to America and taught himself to be a filmmaker. In 2017, Smriti Mundra co-directed a documentary about arranged marriages in India called A Suitable Girl, also featuring Seema Taparia, which won an award at the Tribeca Film Festival. Then she got the idea to film Bruce Franks Jr. I tell her all the time, uh, she saved my life. 
That's Franks, a battle rapper and Black Lives Matter activist elected to the Missouri House of Representatives. Shortly after filming ended with Mundra, Franks fell into a deep depression after the deaths of two people close to him. But when she reached out with an early edit of the film featuring him with his son King, Franks says he rebounded. I truly was contemplating suicide. But that opening scene with my son put everything, put my whole life in a perspective for me. The short film, St. Louis Superman, was eventually nominated for an Oscar in 2020. And Franks resigned from the Missouri House to focus on his mental health. He and Mundra have remained friends. These days, Mundra's helping shepherd the growth of the matchmaking franchise, including a spinoff, Jewish Matchmaking. She hopes to widen the scope of subjects on TV, particularly showcasing stories from Indian and South Asian culture. It's about time. I mean, we're a fifth of the world's population. Our experiences and our perspective is also universal. It's a full circle moment for a storyteller dedicated to proving the power of diversity. I'm Eric Deggins. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is NPR News and 90.9 WBUR. Coming up this afternoon on WBUR, the latest on the Supreme Court deadline to rule on potential restrictions on the abortion drug mifepristone. That's ahead in about 15 minutes on the radio and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. A lovely Friday afternoon. Increasing clouds tonight. Temperature should be down around the mid-40s. Mostly cloudy for tomorrow. Highs about 56 degrees. And then showers, possibly a thunderstorm on Sunday, with a high of about 54. Pretty windy on Sunday as well. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, now you can do the same thing with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with a new WBUR app. Download it at the App Store today. This is WBUR Sunny Skies in the Boston area, 53 degrees at 449. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Naturals, with customer service specialists available daily to help with your health and wellness questions in Cambridge and Brighton and at CambridgeNaturals.com. And Comcast Business, with the Comcast Business Complete Connectivity Solution. It's cybersecurity, internet, and mobile. All from Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service, and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. And I'm Elsa Chang. The new album from the duo Rodrigo y Gabriela is like an encyclopedia of guitar sounds. From poolside jazzy riffs like this. To funky flamenco strumming. Two, something that sounds straight out of a cowboy western movie soundtrack. 
when you play guitar and you're young, you just want to play and you don't see borders musically. You only see guitar, six strings. <laughs> you can play any kind of music, classical, jazz, rock, uh, ranchero. Gabriela Quintero plays rhythm and Rodrigo Sanchez plays lead. Their new album is called In Between Thoughts, A New World. And despite the duo's fluency in so many different guitar styles, the thing that originally brought them together in the early 1990s was their shared love of metal. The two played in a group called Tierra Acida in Mexico City. I think we shared the same sort of musical taste. We both were attracted to guitar music especially thrash metal, which is based on riffs and solos. We had kind of this, uh, I think, the musical taste in common and, uh, you know, the drive and the energy to, you know, to play. But uh, we had this love for acoustic guitar as well as electric. That love for acoustic guitar soon led them to take a whole 180 in their musical careers. They left the metal band behind and went to play beachside resorts on the Pacific coast of Mexico. We were playing like background music and the weddings and the sunset and, and like really swanky scenarios. And from there, they drifted to Europe, thinking they would be entertaining people in similarly comfortable settings, but not so. We were a little bit cultural shocked back then because we arrived in Ireland 99 and that was uh, April. It was freezing. <laughs> and we didn't speak really well English. And gigs were hard to come by, so instead they began busking on the streets of Dublin. Playing there was a humble experience and also made us concentrate a lot. We needed to be so present in those 40 minutes, so intense, just giving our hearts there, you know, so. And those efforts paid off. In 2008, one of their songs appeared in the pilot of Breaking Bad. <laughs> Walter White is sitting in the back of a police car, watching Jesse Pinkman stage a daring escape. Oh my God. Pinkman? And a few years later, they took the stage at a White House dinner. After the uh, initial performances by Rodrigo and Gabriela. Performing for President Obama and his guest, former Mexican President Felipe Calderon. And, uh, we want to see you guys out here uh, having some fun. And then in 2020, they took home a Grammy for Best Contemporary Instrumental Album. Our last album, Metavolution, before this one, won the Grammy. So we were just very excited to know that we, have, we were facing this very long tour worldwide. We were so ready and excited. And then the, this pandemic started and then we learned we were not going to go anywhere, you know, it, it was a, a lot of us, it's uncertainty. We, we started to write music just as a therapy, I guess. We were in the studio and uh, knowing that uh, um, we didn't know what was going to happen and we didn't put any kind of uh, limits on what we were going to use in terms of instruments and, you know, so we added electric guitars, we added electronics, and eventually we added a full orchestra.
so things were kind of growing as as we kind of recorded the you know first the second track the third track we were getting really into it but we still didn't know that was going to become our new album what is it like working with a full orchestra after for so long working with just the two of you most of the time for your albums well initially when we were just on the process of finishing the all the electronic uh, parts of this album that we both came with the idea to why we don't add an orchestra <laughs> why not <laughs> you know it's just like if the if the world is gonna end we might end it with playing and creating this album and this music well when people ask you what is your music's cultural identity? How do you answer that question these days? We, ne we, we never do. <laughs> <laughs> People can call it whatever. We don't really belong to any particular genre that has been kind of created by someone in a record store or something, you know? It is incredible to see the path that you have had as a duo from, you know, two guitarists busking in Ireland to becoming an international sensation, working on film soundtracks, playing for U.S. and Mexican presidents, winning a Grammy just a few years ago. And when you look at the arc of your career, why do you think your music has resonated with so many people? Probably it's a rod scotchy melodies <laughs> had to do with it and because it has the beat and it, it makes it very accessible, you know, it makes it danceable. That's a, a great question, but um, we were never into the idea of becoming the most um, skillful guitar players, you know, it's, it's, we don't come from that background of like, oh, I need to be the fastest or I need to be, you know, the best guitar player in the world or whatever. <laughs> exactly. We just wanted to play music and having all this cultural background, uh, uh, like mix of, you know, being in Mexico City, being this middle class kid, listening to all this music from all over the world and our parents and all that. Probably that, you know, everything is a combination of everything that has, you know, uh, this big appeal, I guess. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I just, I mean, your music always makes me want to dance. Um, I feel like I almost vibrate when I listen to your albums. Oh, cool. <laughs> Rodrigo y Gabriela's new album is called In Between Thoughts, A New World. Thank you so much for sharing this time with us. Oh, thank you, Elsa. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from proven winners color choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens developed for gardens and landscapes nationwide. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. From Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for dedicated and forward-thinking individuals to join their growing team. More information, including application, at progressive.com careers. 
from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Bright, breezy, beautiful this afternoon for this weekend. Not so much. We should have a few clouds moving in tonight down around the mid-40s. And then for tomorrow, heavy on the clouds, windy, about as mild as today has been in the mid-50s. Sunday should be a pretty damp day. Showers, some steady rain in the afternoon, gusty winds as well. High temperatures in the mid-50s. 53 degrees now in Boston at 459. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT's McDermott Award in the Arts, honoring Pamela Z. See her lecture at MIT April 20th. More at arts.mit.edu slash McDermott. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The FDA approved the use of the abortion drug Mifepristone more than 20 years ago. Coming up in the next seven hours, the U.S. Supreme Court is expected to weigh in on whether to keep it widely available. Today is Friday, April 21st, and you're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, fighting in Sudan has raged for a week now. People are trapped in buildings or trying to leave. Even in their desperation, they're finding ways to show their opposition to the violence. Neighborhood gun violence is increasing in Philadelphia, and one elementary school is encouraging students to speak out about it. We have to let them know it is not normal. If they grow up around violence, they'll see that as normal because they may not know what the alternative is. Also, for the first time, you can hear recordings of old jazz performances at Baltimore's now-closed Famous Ballroom. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Sudan is under a three-day tentative ceasefire for both the Sudanese Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces, though gunfire has been reported. The fierce fighting has left hundreds dead, many more injured. White House officials say there are no plans right now to evacuate the 16,000 Americans who are believed to be in the country. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says Americans have been warned over the past year to be ready to evacuate. We urged Americans to use commercial options to leave the country while those options were still readily available. We also offered financial assistance to those who needed help departing the country in accordance with our standard counselor uh, services for American citizens in these sorts of extraordinary situations. And she says the U.S. has made clear to both sides that any attacks, threats, or danger posed to American diplomats are unacceptable. Alabama law enforcement officials have announced yet another arrest in connection with the mass shooting that happened last weekend at a Sweet 16 birthday party. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett reports the sixth arrest is the youngest suspect. Officials announced the age of the latest suspect as 15 years old, and because of his age, they did not release his name. All six suspects face reckless murder charges in relation to the shooting, which killed four individuals and wounded 32 others. Police have still not provided a possible motive for the suspects, and they haven't released other details, such as the weapons used or a timeline of the incident. 
Funeral services for victims began this weekend with the service honoring Corbin DeMontre Holston, who graduated from Dadeville High School in 2018. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Troy, Alabama. Russia says one of its own fighter jets was responsible for a large bomb explosion in a Russian city bordering Ukraine. Local officials say three people were injured. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines has more. According to Russia's defense ministry, an Su-34 Air Force plane was flying over the Russian border city of Belgorod on a mission when it had a, quote, accidental discharge of its payload. The Russian bomb landed in a central city street, creating a massive crater some 65 feet wide and damaging nearby cars and apartment buildings. Belgorod and other border regions have faced occasional shelling from spillover fighting amid Russia's invasion of Ukraine, yet Russian planes have also caused damage. In October of last year, another Su-34 jet crashed into an apartment building in the southern Russian border town of Yeysk, killing more than a dozen people in their homes. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow was up 22 points to end the day at 33,808. The Nasdaq was up 12. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Bristol County Sheriff's Office reports they have one of two units in the Bristol County Jail and House of Correction in Dartmouth back under control. A spokesperson for Sheriff Paul Harrow says a disturbance in the facility started today when prisoners refused to move from their cells so workers can make res- uh, renovations to prevent suicides. There are no reports of injuries. The sheriff says he's been trying to make the jail safer. Bristol County Correctional Facilities have a suicide rate three times the national average. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren says she's concerned what the future will hold for health care providers and the federal government if the Supreme Court denies or restricts access to the abortion drug mifepristone. The court's expected to rule on the matter by midnight tonight. WBUR's Amanda Beeland has more. Warren tells WBUR's Radio Boston that reproductive care providers she's spoken to are scared, and she says they should be, especially if FDA approval of any kind for mifepristone is changed or revoked. And if it can do it once, it can do it twice, it can do it 10 times, it can do it 100 times. And our whole system of an FDA that is independent, that follows the evidence, is out the window. Warren says the Biden administration could work to strengthen certain protections, but she added that realistically that support will likely not come through the Republican-controlled House of Representatives. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. The number of people working in Massachusetts has surpassed the level before the pandemic. The state released federal data today that show employers added 16,300 jobs last month. That puts the state's total number of non-farm jobs higher than it was in February of 2020. The jobless rate declined to 3.5% in March. That's a drop of two-tenths of a percentage point. Two people from Quincy are among three who were found dead off Cape Ann yesterday. The Coast Guard says the men went out on a 17-foot boat on a fishing trip Wednesday, and the vessel capsized. A fourth person who was on the boat is still missing. The Coast Guard suspended its active search this morning. In the forecast, nice Friday afternoon. Increasing clouds, though, overnight tonight. Temperatures around 46. Should be mostly cloudy tomorrow, about 56 degrees. Showers, maybe some thunderstorms on Sunday. Highs of about 54 degrees. 53 now in Boston at 5.07. WBUR supporters include CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, committed to acting in their clients' best interests. 
Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. All right, we're still awaiting news from the Supreme Court, which has until just before midnight tonight to weigh in on whether mifepristone, a drug used in medication abortions, will remain widely available. The court's action sets up a high-profile face-off between the Biden administration and anti-abortion rights groups over access to this medication. And joining us now to explain what this could all mean is Mary Ziegler, a professor and expert on the law, history, and politics of reproduction at the University of California, Davis. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. So, all right, we've been covering all the twists and turns in this case, including a decision from a district court judge in Texas who blocked FDA approval of this drug after a lawsuit from anti-abortion rights groups. There's been a series of legal moves since then. Can you just remind us very briefly, why is the Supreme Court expected to weigh in at this point? Well, we had uh, the court was originally supposed to weigh in on Wednesday. Uh, Justice Alito had set that as a deadline. He's the judge who was initially um, received this appeal. And that deadline um, was extended till today at midnight. So the court is telling us, in effect, that they are going to give us some insight into whether they're going to um, block some access to mifepristone, rewind the clock to 2016, as the Fifth Circuit's order would have it, or instead um, block that order from going into effect while this litigation continues. Okay, so crystal ball question, as we're all still waiting. Since you have studied (laughs) the court and this specific issue so closely, what do you expect the Supreme Court to actually do? in this case at this moment? I mean, I I have no idea, right? So on the one (laughs) hand, this case is, is pretty procedurally flawed. There are really deep and troubling questions about whether the plaintiffs here have standing, um, whether this suit was timely, given that the FDA approved mifepristone um, nearly 25 years ago, and given that this is the plaintiff's claims rely on um, pretty questionable science. So I think that there's a a question of whether even if the Supreme Court um, is generally amenable to a challenge to abortion access or skeptical about the power of administrative agencies like the FDA, whether this is the right vehicle for them to take on those questions. Um, On the other hand, uh, this is a court that has expressed concern about the power of the administrative state and has been open to arguments made by anti-abortion rights lawyers in the past. And so I, I think that leaves us in a position where it really is a guessing game. A guessing game. All right. Well, if we can just zoom out for a moment and talk about the broader stakes, because you've written about how anti-abortion rights groups may use this moment to do more than simply try to block access to mifepristone. Can you talk a little bit more about that piece? Like, what else can we expect now from anti-abortion rights groups? What about their efforts? Yeah, one of the sort of interesting things about this suit has been um, the role played by the Federal Comstock Act, which is a federal anti-vice law that was passed in the Victorian era in 1873 that initially covered birth control um, and what was viewed to be obscene literature. And you've seen kind of Easter eggs from the Fifth Circuit and Judge Kaczmarek on this point suggesting that the FDA's authority is limited in part because the Comstock Act amounts to a national ban on mailing anything having to do with abortion, any device, any drug. And there are anti-abortion rights groups that are hoping that the Supreme Court, one way or another, will declare that the Comstock Act either bars the mailing of abortion pills or anything having to do with abortion amounts, in other words, to a nationwide abortion ban. So while we're seeing ongoing struggles unfolding in states about what... Oops. 
people are going to be able to travel across state lines for abortion, we're also seeing a kind of bid to um, get a de facto nationwide ban through the courts. Okay. Your line cut out just ever so briefly there. Um, Last question for you. If there is a chance that this case will end up back with the Supreme Court one day, what would that mean for access to this abortion pill in the meantime? Can you lay that out for us? Yeah, this would have nationwide implications, right? If the court, this will almost certainly come back to the court on the merits at some point down the road because we've seen divergent outcomes in the lower courts. And if one way or another the Supreme Court puts the brakes on approval for mifepristone, either entirely or partly, that will have effects in states across the country, including those where voters have created state constitutional protection for abortion. That was Mary Ziegler, a professor on the law, history, and politics of reproduction at the University of California, Davis. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. As neighborhood gun violence has increased in Philadelphia, so too has the burden on the city's schools. More than 107 students have been shot so far this school year. 23 have died. Even if the trauma happens off school grounds, it ripples across classrooms. And WHYY's Aubrey Yuhas visited one Philadelphia public school where administrators are speaking out against the violence and teaching their students to do the same. Philadelphia's Kensington neighborhood is at the center of the city's opioid epidemic. Here, people buy, sell, and use drugs out in the open. And there's gun violence. Hundreds of people were shot in the greater area last year, including more than a dozen children and teens. In the middle of all of this sits a gray brick building with a ring of purple paint and a fenced-in yard that's impeccably clean. Good morning, good morning. It's a school. Gloria Caceres Elementary. A bullet does not have a name on it. Donnie, a fifth grader at Caceres, talks about gun violence with a clarity that's shocking for a 10-year-old. If a guy's mad and I'm about to kill somebody, I'm about to kill somebody, no way you about to do this to me, and they buy a gun, boom. When they buy a gun, they see the guy. He shoots him. My family's having dinner, and that bullet shoots through our window, and it probably hits one of my family members, my brother or my sister. I have to worry about that. Many children in Kensington have lost friends and family to gun violence. And all of them have sheltered from gunfire at home or at school, where lockdowns are common. Assistant Principal Julio Nunez says it's important for schools to make space for students to talk about the violence they're experiencing. We have to let them know that it is not normal so that it's not conditioning for them. If they grow up around violence, we know that they'll see that as normal because they may not know uh, what the alternative is. That's why each day at Caceres starts with a morning meeting. It's a chance for students to share how they're feeling and for adults to remind them violence shouldn't be accepted as normal. In Rosa Arnold's fourth grade classroom, her students clean up breakfast, push in their chairs and form a circle. They talk about what they did over the weekend, and then Nunez tells them the prompt for the day. When was the last time you saw or witnessed something that was violent, something that was not right, that was happening anywhere in the community? When was the last time, and how did it make you feel? He gives them a minute to think about the question, while counselors stand ready to offer support. Almost all of the children have something to say. Last time it was a shot that one student says there was a shootout at the park when he went to play basketball with his mom. In another classroom, it's 10-year-old Yolani's turn to speak. 
She talks about a shooting that happened right in front of her house. We just saw a guy run, and then someone laying on the floor. I'm so sorry. When, when did that happen? Yesterday. As the students share, Nunez repeats two things over and over again. Violence isn't normal. It's not normal. Don't ever think it is. And school is the safest place to be. Ultimately, the conversation is about making students feel powerful, not powerless. It's a lesson Yolani says she understands. Like Mr. Nunez said, what do you have a voice for if you're not using it? Yolani is part of a group of students who, with the support of their teachers, have become their own advocates. Last year, the students led a successful campaign to get the school's pothole-filled yard repaved. And recently, they held a mayoral debate so they could ask the candidates questions face-to-face. Here's 10-year-old Jeremiah. How will you prevent or at least decrease the level of gun violence across the city and make it harder for criminals to get guns? We just want to be safe and learn. The school's principal, Awilda Balbuena, wants the same thing. She says a lot of work goes into keeping Casares safe, especially as shootings in the area have increased. I get teary-eyed because I know, like, I can go for a walk with my son around my block. We could both get on our bikes go for a bike ride and stay very healthy that way. And and then I know that our children are not doing those things. And it really pains me that my students don't get that. Casares offers after-school activities through outside partners. But the programs only have room for a small number of kids. And there's a waiting list. But Buena says the school would like to offer summer programs, but can't since its more than 100-year-old building doesn't have central air. Assistant Principal Nunez says district officials are doing a better job responding to gun violence than they have in the past, but that they need to think about the long-term consequences of some policies. He says the more negative experiences a child has at school, the less likely they are to keep coming. So by the time they get to a place where it is their choice to walk to school, they're choosing to opt out. And it is because of the quality of services that we provided or failed to provide. In Philadelphia, 14 percent of students dropped out of school during the 2020-21 school year, which is the most recent data available. Balbuena says it's time for educators to respond to the city's gun violence more directly. I think this is how we got here. I think it was passing the buck to someone else. It's someone else's problem. And we see here at Gloria Cáceres, it is our problem. She says doing nothing is a way of condoning the violence. And that's unacceptable. For NPR News, I'm Aubrey Juhas in Philadelphia. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered in about 15 minutes, voices of resistance in Sudan, where heavy fighting moves into a second week. 
And at 544, economists disagree about whether we'll return to an era of low interest rates and low inflation. One prominent economist has changed his mind on the subject. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today. In business news, stocks had a kind of lazy day today with little change by the end of the session. The Dow and S&P and NASDAQ all gained about a tenth of a percent. For the Dow, it was the end of a four-week winning streak. Florida's emergency management officials have terminated their contract with a Burlington tech company. The firm Everbridge manages emergency push alerts. Florida officials say the company made a mistake this week that caused a test emergency alert that was supposed to go out on TV stations to go out on cell phones instead in the middle of the night. Everbridge says it was an unfortunate human error and it regrets the inconvenience it caused. It's 519. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and counseling are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 5th. Semesteroff.com. So nice out there right now. We should have a few clouds moving in tonight, though, down around the mid-40s. The weekend's looking gray. Tomorrow, heavy on the clouds, windy, just about as mild as today has been in the mid-50s. Sunday should be the damp day. Lots of showers, especially in the afternoon. Some gusty winds, highs again in the mid-50s. This is WBUR, 53 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Two blocks north of Baltimore's Penn Station, there's a movie house now known as the Charles Theater. Hello. In a previous era, this building housed a venue called the Famous Ballroom. There were plastic stars and plastic moons and plastic clouds in the ceiling. There was canopy that looked like a circus tent. It was a dance hall. From the mid-1960s into the early 80s, nearly every Sunday from 5 p.m. onward, the famous ballroom was reserved for concerts put on by Baltimore's Left Bank Jazz Society. These were major shows. They brought in Duke Ellington and John Coltrane. We would do Art Blakey one week. Count Basie the following week, Hard Silver the next week, Lee Morgan. The In the lobby, week. I met John Fowler, a charter member of the Left Bank Jazz Society. I'm not a mathematician, but that's somewhere around 700 concerts. They got so many big time artists to come to Baltimore because, well, for one, it was very convenient by train. The Left Bank also insisted the artists got paid for their work on time. One of the things that we prided ourselves on, nobody ever left Baltimore without their money. And to hear John Fowler tell it, the vibe was unmatched. There were about a hundred tables set out. Sometimes families brought entire Sunday dinners. Fried chicken, crab cakes, homemade potato salad, 
fifths of liquor. You could bring everything with you. We had a lady who sold baked goods, cake, pies, cookies, all of that. We sold beer, potato chips, and pretzels. That helped bring in an audience that was both young and old, black and white, unusually diverse for its time. They're jazz fans. We don't give a damn. You know, they could be green. Long as you got the price of admission, we don't care. A diverse and discerning audience. Gimmicks didn't work here in Baltimore. You had to play. When you got a standing ovation in the ballroom, you have really played your heart out. For the volunteers of the Left Bank Jazz Society, that was enough motivation to keep promoting shows in Baltimore for about 40 years in total. Some happened at other venues, but nothing was quite like a Sunday at the famous ballroom. And just know that there are 800 people in here who are having the time of their life. There's five guys on the stage who are playing some of the best music in the history of the world. And the fact that you had a small part in helping that to happen. The thing is, a lot of those concerts were recorded, mostly for the private archives of the Left Bank and for the artists themselves. Until a few years ago, only a handful of them were released as commercial albums by record labels. But hardcore jazz fans knew the tapes were there. And one of those fans is a record producer who grew up less than an hour away from Baltimore in the Washington, D.C. suburbs. It's truly historic, an amazing story. Zeb Feldman has made a career out of finding archival records of jazz greats. For him, the raw material can't just be good, it has to be great. It's like fire on gasoline. I leap out of bed in the morning, I'm constantly researching with archives all around the world, trying to find the special recording, not just any recording, but something that's really meaningful. Feldman makes the greatest of his finds into deluxe limited edition albums. He's done this for over a decade with a number of record labels and has already put out three recordings from the Left Bank archives. This year, he's helped produce three more albums out today on CD and tomorrow on vinyl for Record Store Day. And each was recorded, at least in part, at the famous ballroom in Baltimore. We're unearthing history here, but and he loves it. I do. Feldman, Fowler, and I sat down feet away from where these iconic shows used to happen to talk about these new releases. First up, a recording of the legendary saxophonist Sonny Stitt from the fall of 1973. This is a, a really remarkable tape. Sonny Stitt was a pioneer, one of the most amazing gunslingers, if you will, in jazz with dexterity and the way he played, and he was a master. Sonny Stitt being a local artist, for his children, the Left Bank performances were really important, and this was the chance that they would have an opportunity to go see their father play, so become a family outing. So these shows are really special, and it's a really testament of the genius of Sonny Stitt. We booked him on nine different occasions. Nine different occasions, yes. wow. Yes. So what do you remember about Sonny Stitt as a performer, as someone who was in those spaces? Unmatchable. When he came to town, every local horn player in the city showed up. They all stood at the back of the ballroom listening to the master. In Baltimore, you say Sonny Stitt, you got a packed audience. Feldman takes another newly pressed LP out of his bag. 
a recording of the organist Shirley Scott and her band from 1972. This is a tour de force performance from one of the pioneers of soul jazz, if you want to call it that. She was a legendary organ player. This performance from 1972 captures her live. I think Shirley Scott is one of the greats. I don't think we get a chance to talk about her as much, so I feel like Why do you think that is, though? Why do you think that someone like a Shirley Scott is not as well known? Women caught hell back in the day, especially in jazz. And if you stood up for yourself, you know, you got that bad reputation as being hard to deal with. You could be as as good on your instrument as, as the next guy, but because he was a man, he got better treatment than you got. The third recording that's coming out was made in the mid-60s when pianist Walter Bishop Jr. came to Baltimore. We all talked about how he too was an undersung master from the bebop era. Really, we talked about a lot of the giants who came through this lobby. There were many, many stories. It was only after that that John Fowler got up and pointed out where exactly the famous ballroom used to be. The ceiling of this building would have been the flooring of the ballroom. So the ballroom would have been all the way up there, above the ceiling that we are seeing today. And slightly to the left. Fowler told me he'd only been here one other time since the early 80s when the famous ballroom fell into disrepair. The high ceilings, movie posters, and popcorn machines that we saw gave no hint of the legendary left bank concerts that once happened here. And this part of Baltimore City has changed too. It's great to be here, but there's nothing here that would kick in that memory other than the address 1717 North Charles Street. I mean, it's completely... There was no crepe restaurant next door to the ballroom when we had the concerts here. So there's very little other than the fact that I know what happened upstairs. John Fowler knows what happened upstairs. He was there. He hopes that as these recordings are released, more people will be able to experience what happened here too. The new albums are from Sonny Stitt, Shirley Scott, and Walter Bishop Jr. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up on WBUR, a Milwaukee coffee shop owner this week was asked if he had an extra coffee grinder to lend to an NBA all-star. I was like, yeah, I don't think I have anything laying around. And then he was like, no, it's not for us. It's actually for Jimmy Butler. And I was like, oh, actually, we do have something around for Jimmy Butler. We'll have more on that chance encounter coming up in the next half hour on WBUR. Big night for Boston sports fans tonight. The Bruins and Celtics get back to playoff action. The Bees are in Florida to face the Panthers in Game 3 of their first round playoff series. Series is tied 1-1. The Bruins will be without Captain Patrice Bergeron for the next two games. Celtics are in Atlanta to play the Hawks. Boston leads that series two games to zero. Red Sox play Milwaukee tonight at 8-10. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, celebrating spring with their Crescent Ridge ice cream stand, now open year-round. Seasonal hours at volantefarms.com. On last week's Wait, Wait, Alonzo Bowden offered some thoughts on paleontology. (laughs) Do you know how frustrating it would be to give a T-Rex with little arms 
lip gloss. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagel. This week we pitch Weird Al Yankovic in a parody of the theme from Jurassic Park. Sure, it has no words. That just means more possibilities. Join us for the News Quiz from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Police have arrested a man accused of shooting and injuring a six-year-old and her parents in a North Carolina neighborhood this week. From member station WFAE, Nick De La Canal has more. Officers say 24-year-old Robert Singletary turned himself in Thursday in Tampa, Florida. He faces four counts of attempted murder after officers say he shot and wounded a mother, father, and their six-year-old daughter Tuesday outside their home near Charlotte. The mother, Ashley Hildebrand, says the man opened fire after a basketball rolled into his yard. The father and child were hospitalized with serious injuries. It was the fourth high-profile shooting in less than a week in which apparent mistakes were met with gunfire. For NPR News, I'm Nick Delacanal in Charlotte. The Sudanese Army and a paramilitary group say they have agreed to a 72-hour truce beginning today. But Michael Koloki tells us gunfire persists. The Sudanese army, which has been engaged in fighting with the RSF since last Saturday, said in a statement that the three-day truce would allow people to celebrate the Muslim holiday of Eid el-Fitr. The RSF made a similar announcement earlier in the day. However, gunfire and explosions continued to be reported in the capital Khartoum, even after the ceasefire declaration. Meanwhile, U.S. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby says that no decision has yet been made to evacuate American diplomats from Sudan. For NPR News, I am Michael Kaloki in Nairobi. The founder of MyPillow says he has no intention of paying off a $5 million bet over his false claims that China interfered in the 2020 elections to help Joe Biden with the White House or win the White House. An arbitration panel has ordered Mike Lindell to pay the $5 million to a software engineer who provided a 15-page report that showed Lindell's theory was completely false. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Correction officers are working to restore order at the Bristol County Jail in Dartmouth. Bristol County Sheriff's Office spokesman Jonathan Darling says nobody has been hurt during a prisoner disturbance that began this morning. We have one housing unit under control right now, and we're just working on one more. Um, but the finish line's in sight for us today. Darling says the disturbance began when a group of prisoners blocked entry to their housing units when officers tried to move them to another area. The sheriff ordered the move to allow work on renovations to prevent prisoner suicides. Bristol County Correctional Facilities have a suicide rate three times the national average. Boston is expanding its food waste curbside collection program. Mayor Michelle Wu announced today the service will be made available to 30,000 households. Since the program launched last summer, 10,000 homes have been able to get rid of their food waste by leaving it out on the curb to be picked up. It's turned into renewable electricity and into compost. Scientists at the New England Aquarium say the number of endangered North Atlantic right whales born during the calving season that just ended is half the number of what's necessary each year to keep the species viable. Eleven mother calf pairs have been documented. The whales frequent the waters off Massachusetts this time of year. Scientist Amy Warren says if the decade-long decline in births continues at this pace, those whales could be extinct in the next 30 to 50 years. We're happy to see that the whales are still giving birth. They are trying. They're doing what they can to survive. And we would just like to see if us as, like, 
mankind can turn things around for them. Warren says expanded speed restrictions for ships can help prevent more collisions with the whales. She also says that more use of ropeless fishing gear can prevent dangerous entanglements. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AAFCPAs, Accounting, Audit, Tax, Advisory, and Wealth Management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com. Should have a few clouds moving in overnight tonight, a nice night, temperatures in the mid-40s. Then the weekend is looking pretty gray. Tomorrow, lots of clouds around, windy, temperatures still in the mid-50s. Sunday should be the wetter day. Showers, some heavy rains likely in the afternoon, strong winds around Sunday as well, maybe thunderstorms, highs again in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru, with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. After nearly a week of war in Sudan, neither the army nor the powerful paramilitary group are backing down. The guns haven't even been silenced for the end of Ramadan today. Both sides claim they are fighting for the Sudanese people, but that is a claim most people in the country reject. And amid the gunfire, bombing and shelling, some still find ways to make their voices heard. As NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu reports. At night in Khartoum, during moments when the artillery and gunfire subside, Dua Tariq and her friends walk together through the battered, disfigured streets. They spray the words, no to war, on walls around the city. And they chant so that people sheltering in their homes can hear them. All revolutionary continue chanting, tell the people of the neighborhood, I'm coming as long as I'm alive. You're safe, don't be scared. Dua is an activist and part of a group called No to War, which formed just after the fighting started. Before then, she was a member of one of the resistance committees, which organized during the revolution that toppled Sudan's longtime leader, Omar al-Bashir, in 2019. The idea came uh, when we felt, we felt the, 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 um, the sound of the bullets silencing our voices. But after a week of war, there are fewer people left to hear them. Thousands are fleeing Khartoum as the city is destroyed by the conflict. Dead bodies lay strewn on the roadsides or kept inside homes because they can't be buried. Many in Khartoum are at home without electricity or water and weighing the threat of running away against the threat of staying behind, knowing either could kill them. Uh, my mom was, she, she was an angel, she was a true angel. 66-year-old Nagwa Khalid Hamad died in her living room in Khartoum when a mortar hit her home. She was killed by shrapnel which pierced through the windows. She was a wife and a mother of four children. Her youngest child is 30-year-old Khalid Osman. Obviously, my mom did so much good to people that I didn't even know about. I'm not saying that because I'm her son. Khalid lives in Ohio, and he was trying to get his mother a green card to bring her to the U.S. He says it was a backup plan because she didn't want to leave Sudan. 
My mom loves her country so much. And my mom just didn't want to leave the country. She wanted to stay. She's she hated she hated that 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 coup regime that Omar al Bashir was leading and this new one. She just wanted, like the rest of the people, she wanted the civilian-led government. Bashir was deposed after 30 years in power during the revolution in 2019. Khalid's mother and millions in Sudan truly believed in the promise of a country free of military rule. But since then, that promise has faded and been shattered by the fighting over the last week. A fragile transition to democracy has been unraveled by the fierce competition for power between two former allies. General Abdul Fattah al-Bahan, the de facto head of state and leader of the army, and his deputy, General Mohammed Hamdan Dagolo, or Hemeti, leader of the powerful Rapid Support Forces. Both claim to be fighting on behalf of Sudan, even though the conflict is destroying it. Right now, most of the people I know are planning to leave. The bullets are so loud and the, and, and the fear on the children's eyes is so, it, it, it's just so frustrating. All we can do is to support and provide hugs, but also us, we need, we need to be hugged, we need to be heard. But for Dua, marking her resistance on wars in her neighborhood and chanting words of comfort has brought some reprieve and a sense of defiance. For brief moments between the violence, she feels she has a voice. And don't forget, even when it gets dark and ugly, we're here around you, holding you down. Emmanuel Akimotu, NPR News, Lagos. It's NBA playoff time, and like all top athletes, these ballers have routines and rituals that bring them joy and get them ready to play. For Jimmy Butler of the Miami Heat, it's coffee. Let's rewind back to 2020. That's right. The NBA playoffs started in the bubble. All qualifying teams were in Orlando, Florida. But Butler saw there was a lack of good coffee. And he saw an opportunity and started charging other players 20 bucks a cup from his hotel room, armed with nothing but a single French press. Definitely a steep price for a steeped cup, but it grew mm-hmm. into a real business. And Butler officially launched Big Face Coffee in October 2021. And it's a total passion project. Butler loves coffee. That's right. Here he is talking with Onyx Coffee Lab earlier this year. I want to be the best in the coffee world, just like I want to be in any and everything else. Uh, But outside of the Big Face brand, myself, I want to be the world's best barista. The forward is a leading scorer on the heat, so when he found himself preparing to take on the Milwaukee Bucks without a coffee grinder... Like any coffee professional, he reached out to a fellow pro, a local coffee store. A grinder is a little bit harder to kind of like bring along, I guess. And so they just kind of, I don't know if they do this often, but I think they were here for five days. So they were just kind of setting up shop and getting getting as comfortable as they could in the, in the house that they were staying at. That is Ryan Hoban, owner of Interval, a local coffee roaster in Milwaukee. Another Milwaukee coffee shop owner reached out to him looking for an extra grinder. And I was like, yeah, I don't think I have anything laying around. And then he was like, no, it's not for us. It's for it's actually for Jimmy Butler. And I was like, oh. And then I thought a little bit harder. I was like, oh, actually, we do have something around for Jimmy Butler. 
So Hoban dropped off the grinder and got the chance to talk shop with Butler. But Hoban didn't have his eye on the ball. This was the playoffs. Fueled with coffee, Jimmy Butler scored an impressive 35 points against Hoban's own home team, the Bucks, in that first game. Yeah, it was still a pretty big sports town, and so there was, there was definitely some internet hate. Hoban says he has no regrets on being hospitable, but it does help that the Bucks won game two. I'm very grateful the Bucks did what they did, because otherwise we might have just closed the business down. I don't know. Jimmy Butler and the Miami Heat will return to Milwaukee for Game 5 on April 26th. Hoban will be rooting for the Bucks, but he says he's always willing to brew and banter with Butler. Back in February, Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman checked himself into Walter Reed National Medical Center to receive treatment for clinical depression. He stayed for 44 days, and he's back at work now. Yesterday, he sat down with my co-host Scott Detro for his first extended interview since he returned to Congress. And yes, he was wearing his signature gym shorts. You can hear that conversation with Senator Fetterman on our daily afternoon news podcast called Consider This. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed. Enjoy expanded content or connect to your favorite member station, wherever you are. Get the NPR app for your mobile device. You can also lean back and enjoy npr.org, optimized for the iPad. This is NPR. Interest rates have more than doubled since 2020, and many Americans are wondering whether they will come down again. Planet Money's Greg Rizalski has the story of one leading economist who radically changed his mind on the subject. Up until recently, we saw a historic trend. For 40 years, interest rates just kept falling. Larry Summers, the former U.S. Treasury Secretary, gave a speech in 2013 that offered an influential theory for why interest rates had fallen so low. I wonder if a set of older ideas that went under the phrase secular stagnation are not profoundly important. Secular stagnation, it's an esoteric way of saying long-term economic sluggishness. Simple enough, but for Summers and a large number of economists after he gave the speech, the theory also explained why interest rates had fallen so abnormally low. Interest rates are essentially the price of borrowing money. And Summer says there was a huge pool of money out there to be borrowed, so lots of savings, but not a lot of demand to actually borrow and invest it. So high supply, low demand, and the price of borrowing, interest rates, just kept going down. Investment was low, Summer says, because for one thing, technology just made it cheaper to do business. So companies didn't have to invest as much. My $600 cell phone has more computing power than a $50 million supercomputer did 25 years ago. So even if somebody wants to buy the same amount of computing power, they're going to absorb a lot less savings. Even more important, the economy wasn't growing much. I mean, there was stagnation. There were fewer businesses investing in new things like buildings, machines, or factories. Meanwhile, there was a ton of money available to be borrowed, lots of savings. One reason, people were getting richer, so they were willing and able to save more. 
Another reason, baby boomers were saving a lot for retirement. When people are expecting to age, they save more. For almost a decade, Larry Summers was what you might call the chief secular stagnationist. But in 2020, something big happened that Summers believes rocketed the economy out of the rut of secular stagnation. COVID. The government injected over two years more than $5 trillion in fiscal stimulus. Now the question is, is secular stagnation dead or is it just taking a little nap? Now, some economists believe this period of higher interest rates is just a blip and this 40-year trend of lower interest rates will pick up where it left off. But despite pushing the theory of secular stagnation for almost a decade, Summers now believes secular stagnation is probably dead. He thinks we're in for a period of more investment and less savings going forward. First, he says all those boomers who were saving for retirement, well, they're increasingly retired. Once people have aged and they're retiring, then they draw down their savings and spend. Also, he says we're going to be investing more in green technology to combat climate change and in the military due to factors like the war in Ukraine. Bottom line, Summer says he thinks there's a very good possibility that it's just going to cost a lot more to borrow than it did in the recent past. And that could have big consequences for everything from the housing market to the capacity of the government to borrow and spend. Greg Rosalski, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Coming up on All Things Considered, what do you get when you put a Puerto Rican rapper, Bad Bunny, and the Mexican band Grupo Frontera together on stage? That's coming up next. MBTA maintenance projects will disrupt some service this weekend. On the red line, trains between Kendall MIT and JFK UMass stations will be replaced by shuttle buses tomorrow and Sunday. On the Haverhill commuter rail line, buses will replace trains between Haverhill and Reading starting tomorrow, going on for the next two weeks. Also on the commuter rail, the Newburyport-Rockport line will have shuttle buses in place between Rockport and West Gloucester starting tomorrow and lasting for three weeks. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. Check out a new podcast from WBUR in partnership with The Marshall Project. Violation explores America's opaque parole system through a decades-old murder case. You can hear Violation wherever you get your podcasts. Overnight tonight, partly cloudy, lows in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, lots of clouds. Sunday, lots of clouds. Heavy winds and rain as well. WBUR supporters include UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. As he grew up in Boston, Dennis Lehane says he saw women he never saw in books or movies. They were capable of going toe-to-toe with a man in a fistfight. That wasn't saying they'd win, but they were capable of doing it. Dennis Lehane on his new novel, Small Mercies, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. And I'm Juana Summers. It is festival season, and this year, Bad Bunny is one of the headliners at Coachella. He's known for taking reggaeton to new heights, and he is the biggest pop star in the world. Bad Bunny is also the first Spanish-language artist to headline Coachella. And after last weekend's performance, he made waves again, but not with reggaeton. Bad Bunny released a single and video with a different sort of crossover, the regional Mexican band Grupo Frontera, that almost immediately racked up more than 25 million views in two days. Everybody has been talking about this, and I wanted to know more about this single, but also where it fits into the culture. So we are going to hit up our group chat. We've got Ana Maria Sayer from NPR Music's Alt Latino and NPR's Mexico City correspondent, Ader Peralta. Hey, y'all. Hey, Juana. Hey, how's it going? Hey, good to talk to you. All right, so this is a new sound for Bad Bunny. I mean, I was pretty surprised when I heard it, but were y'all? <laughs> I was surprised. I mean, because... Leading up to this moment, urban and pop music had been kind of sneaking its way into these regional Mexican songs. But when the biggest pop star in the world decides to dip in, he does it with a straight up, uncomplicated, traditional Texas cumbia. I must admit, when I heard that Bad Bunny was going to be doing some regional, this is not what I expected. I mean, the only real reggaeton connection here are Bad Bunny's vocals. We all know them, and hearing them over this instrumental is really striking. But that and this super modern story, I mean, stalking an ex on Instagram, his phone's on 1%, that feels pretty Bad Bunny to me. Oh, yeah, it does. And I mean, this song from Bad Bunny, it is not the only song from the regional Mexican genre that's really blowing up right now, right? Yep, that's right. Let's hear a little of it. Okay, I am into this, but I don't know who I'm hearing here. Tell me who this is. You're hearing Eslabon Armado and Peso Pluma. And This song is the perfect example of what's known as a corrido tumbado. And they're these stripped down songs of heartbreak, or in this case, it's about a guy who's trying to woo a girl who's dancing alone at a party. But they're throwbacks to Mexican country music, but they have a a hip hop swagger. Um, And this song is already a massive hit. I mean, it's really struck a nerve. We all know Selena, obviously, and we thought that she was the person that was taking Regional beyond the region, but she never cracked the top pop charts in the U.S. This song just cracked the top 10 of the Hot 100 Billboard chart. I mean, we're not talking about the chart in Mexico, not in the U.S. We're talking about of all of the world right here. This is really a watershed moment for the genre. But for those of us who've been tracking it, it's really not coming out of nowhere. We've been watching this build for years from something that was just in the Norteño region of Mexico to something that was listened to in the country at large, and now we're seeing it hit the international stage. I mean, 
We saw a number of regional artists perform at Coachella this past week. Artists like Saf Rock Corrido Fusion, Danny Lux. Poppy heartthrob Becky G, who brought out record-breaking Peso Pluma. And we're watching this happen at the same time as international artists like Bad Bunny and Carol G are adopting the genre. Okay, I want some backstory. Where does this genre come from? It has deep roots. Um, I mean, it really reaches back more than 150 years when Mexicans would write songs about wars and revolutionary heroes. But more recently, that changed. I mean, it became about, you know, the life of drug runners or, or in the case of Los Tigres del Norte, about life as an immigrant in the U.S. It's always been something that Mexicanos have leaned on as something that speaks to their experience, but it was very much known and seen as not only something distinctly Mexican, but specifically a genre that was confined to the northern part of the country. Something that also kind of had a bit of a stigma around it as being, I don't know, rancho music, something that wasn't well respected in the country, but everything is changing right now. Why do you all think this is happening now? <laughs> I mean, Ader and I definitely have our theories. Um, one is just to say that I think the Latin American diaspora, the Spanish-speaking diaspora, has never been more united than it is in this moment. I think platforms like TikTok, Spotify, we can really attribute some of that unification to to the way that people are able to connect and find something of each other's histories and stories and sonic legacies within each other's music. And, and I'll take the long view. I mean, I, I think we have to remember that for a long time, Mexico was the center of the Latin cultural universe. And, you know, then as reggaeton took over the world, that center drifted toward the Caribbean. And now it's just drifting back to Mexico. And Mexican music has historically been amazing at helping us process sadness and no one else on the continent does it better. I don't think anybody will fight me on that. And so a lot of these songs are about loss and pain and yearning and they're coming at a particularly precarious time for our planet. So to me, these songs are just really, they're just finding their moment. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the young generation of today is really into their sensitive boys. And <laughs> Peso Pluma does that better than anyone. Ana Maria Sayer is the co-host of NPR Music's podcast, Alt Latino, and Ader Peralta is NPR's Mexico City correspondent. Thanks to both of you. Thank you, Juana. Thanks. <laughs>
las estrellas son las del techo de esa camioneta Subir al cielo en el privado, nena Y si tú no quieres, pues no hay ningún problema You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people achieve quality sleep. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. From Cunard, offering travelers an opportunity to voyage aboard Cunard's Queen Elizabeth to Alaska. Guests can explore ports and scenic cruising through Glacier Bay National Park with locally sourced cuisine. More at cunard.com. And from Peacock, with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streaming now on Peacock. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Still pretty lovely out there this evening. Some clouds moving in overnight tonight. Lows about 43. Tomorrow, clouds thicken. Temperatures return to the mid-50s and stay there for Sunday. Should be a stormy day on Sunday. Strong winds, heavy rains. Chance of thunderstorms, too. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Grogan & Company, fine art and jewelry auctioneers, whose spring auction weekend is May 6th and 7th. Learn more at groganco.com. And Dedham Community Theater, an independent cinema in historic Dedham Square, now showing somewhere in Queens and showing up. Showtimes at dedhamcommunitytheater.com. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The future of a widely used abortion pill is in the hands of the nation's highest court, Justices are set to weigh in by midnight tonight on a case that targets the drug Mifeprestone. It's Friday, April 21st, and you're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, a Colorado startup says it's developed a viable smart gun. It's got technology similar to what's in your smartphone and lets only a registered user unlock and fire the gun. The heavy rains that caused widespread damage in California this winter have made possible super blooms of flowers and replenishment of wetlands. When we see water spread across the landscape as you're driving through the Central Valley, you think of this as a really negative thing, and yet there are so many benefits because of it. We'll hear about them coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden is rejecting House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's proposal to cut spending in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, Biden made the remarks at an event where he signed an executive order on environmental justice. President Biden was talking about the effects of climate change when he turned to McCarthy's proposal. It would, among other things, gut the Inflation Reduction Act passed by Democrats in Congress last year. That legislation includes a huge amount of spending on energy efficiency and clean energy. Imagine seeing all this happen, the wildfires, the storms, the floods, and doing nothing about it, nothing about it. 
Imagine taking all these clean energy jobs away from working class folks all across America. McCarthy is calling for Biden to negotiate, but the White House insists Congress should raise the debt ceiling without preconditions. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin in Germany to attend the Ukraine Defense Contract Group meeting with key international allies says 31 Abrams M1A1 tanks will arrive in Germany next month with roughly 250 Ukrainian troops expected to begin training on them soon. I'm confident that this equipment and the training that accompanied it, it will put Ukraine's forces in a position to continue to succeed on the battlefield. And he says around 9,000 other Ukrainian soldiers have received training on other U.S. weapons systems in an effort to keep Ukraine's battlefield presence strong heading into the spring. Twitter has taken off the restraints for government media accounts in Russia, China, and Iran. Before CEO Elon Musk took over, the company made sure fewer eyeballs saw those tweets. NPR's Dara Kerr reports that's no longer the case. A few weeks ago, Twitter quietly made an internal change to its website. It removed the guardrails it had on government media accounts in countries that limited access to free information. Those guardrails were there to curb the spread of propaganda and misinformation. For example, some of the Russian accounts referred to Ukraine as a, quote, Nazi regime. The Atlantic Council, a U.S.-based think tank, said since the change was made, it's seen a spike in followers for those accounts. In the months prior, those accounts had been hemorrhaging followers. A former Twitter executive who worked on the Safeguard program said to see it dismantled is, quote, disheartening. Dara Kerr, NPR News. The Supreme Court has self-imposed a deadline of midnight tonight to decide whether access to a widely used abortion pill will remain unchanged as a challenge to the FDA's approval is resolved. The justices are weighing arguments that allowing restrictions from lower court rulings to take effect would severely disrupt the availability of the drug mifepristone. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. We're awaiting the Supreme Court's decision on the abortion drug mifepristone. The high court has said it will rule by the end of the day today on access to the pill used in medical abortions. Christy Monast is executive director for Health Q, a reproductive health clinic serving the Lawrence area. We know that we're still going to be providing abortion services. We know that we're still going to be providing medication abortions. We don't know exactly how that's going to look. Manasse tells WBUR's Radio Boston she's frustrated the legal tussle is distracting staff from providing critical care to their patients. Earlier this month, Governor Maura Healy signed an executive order that confirms the drug and medical abortion is protected in Massachusetts under state law. The Bristol County Sheriff is about to brief reporters after today's prisoner disturbance in the county jail in Dartmouth. Nobody was hurt during the day-long standoff. A group of prisoners resisted when officers tried to move them from their cells to another part of the facility. The jail is undergoing renovations to prevent prisoners' suicides. Correctional facilities in Bristol County have a suicide rate three times the national average. The head of the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce is applauding Governor Healy's new appointments to the MBTA board. Jim Rooney says the decision to name former T General Manager Thomas Glynn as the new board chair will bring a change in leadership and a new approach. I'm a realist, and I do know, given the hole that's been dug at the T, that there's a lot of work to do, and people shouldn't expect miracles out of any one of these people, but they are good choices and people that I certainly have confidence in. 
Healy also chose former State Senator Tom McGee as commercial ba- uh, and commercial banker Eric Goodwine to replace appointees of former Governor Baker. Rooney says all three will bring skills needed to improve the struggling transit system. A portion of Interstate 95 South between Boston and New York City in Connecticut will be closed for an undetermined amount of time. A crash involving a fuel truck and a car ignited a major fire on the I-95 southbound bridge between New London and Groton, Connecticut today. The burning fuel melted part of a protective fencing on the side of the bridge. Officials say an extensive safety inspection will be needed before any decision can be made on reopening. In the forecast, some clouds roll in tonight. More over the weekend. Tonight should be breezy, down around 43 degrees. Tomorrow, overcast skies in the mid-50s. Sunday, still in the mid-50s, but plenty wet. Thunderstorms, some gusty winds likely in the afternoon. It's 6.07. WBUR supporters include ECMC Foundation, working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Happy Friday. We've got a great show lined up for you today, including developments at Twitter, developments that are deeper than blue check marks, and later, new music from guitar virtuosos Rodrigo y Gabriela. But we start today with what ethics experts are calling a double standard for Supreme Court justices. The highest court in the country does not have a code of ethics. And with recent news that Justice Clarence Thomas failed to disclose multiple multiple gifts and transactions, that lack of guiding principles is raising scrutiny. That's because federal workers do face a lot of rules and regulations on and off the job. Here to help us understand this is NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Hey, Domenico. Hey, Scott. So let's start with the basics. What are the ethics rules that federal workers have to follow, and how is that different from Supreme Court justices? Well, there's a lot of them, and they're slightly different across uh, different agencies. You know, the Office of Government Ethics oversees ethical standards for all of the executive branch's employees, and we're talking about everyone from census workers up to the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. They have 14 guiding general principles that they put forth, and first is employees being expected to, quote, place loyalty to the Constitution, the laws and ethical principles above private gain. The Supreme Court, though, as you said, has no such guiding principles. There's no ethics code. But the nine justices are required uh, by the same ethics law to submit public financial disclosures. That includes gifts over a few hundred dollars. If they don't, they can face criminal charges or stiff Hmm. civil penalties. And that's where watchdogs come in and who are raising major questions about Justice Clarence Thomas. Okay, so let's recap here. Thomas did not disclose gifts of luxury vacations, overnight stays, trips on a private jet, all of these certainly worth more than a few hundred dollars. (laughs) These all came from a conservative billionaire over the course of many, many years. So is there any talk of these criminal or civil penalties? It's complicated. Two nonpartisan watchdog groups who I talked to this week, the Project on Government Oversight and the Campaign Legal Center, both believe there's enough evidence to do so. They've written actually long letters urging the Department of Justice to pursue action. They say that even if Thomas was found guilty civilly and wasn't pursued criminally, he could face penalties that reach close to a million dollars. That's because there's a more than $70,000 penalty for each omission if left out purposefully. And each vacation, there could be multiple violations. Over years, that adds up pretty fast. 
but they're not confident Thomas is going to face any consequences, and that's because of what they see as a double standard. One for the high-profile and well-connected, another for everyone else. Here's Walter Schaub, who used to run the Office of Government Oversight and is now a senior fellow at the Project on Government Oversight. The Department of Justice has shown a real unwillingness to hold the top officials in government to the same standard it holds lower level officials to. And if you think about it, that's government ethics standing on its head because the higher up you go and the more power you have to do harm, the more you should be held accountable because the stakes are so much greater. And that's the point that, you know, Schaub really is stressing here, who was head of Office of Government Ethics. You know, for his part, Thomas says that he didn't know he had to disclose these gifts because they're from someone he calls a personal friend. Hmm. But he'll do so in the future. Now, these watchdog groups don't buy that. They point to the fact that Thomas used to declare these kinds of gifts for years until a 2004 L.A. Times article spotlighted the depths of Thomas's gifts that were more than almost any other justice. And real quick, any action in Congress that's important to look at here? You know, it's unlikely Democratic Senate Judiciary Chairman Dick Durbin has asked uh, Chief Justice John Roberts to testify early next month. Republicans not going along to mm-hmm. pressure him. That's Domenica Montanaro. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Okay, we've talked a lot about California's record-setting and devastating year of rain so far, but what about the benefit of all that water? NPR's Nathan Rott was lucky enough to see it. Gabe Garcia and John Kelly almost passed the dirt road we're looking for. With all of the new growth on the valley floor, it's easy to miss. So just for perspective, last year this area was like it was just mowed. No vegetation coverage, almost like, you know, some spots just dirt. This year, the valley floor, the Tembler Range to the north, the Calientes to the south, nearly everything at Carrizo Plain National Monument is coated in wildflowers. Yellow, purple, orange, and blue. We step out of the truck into a sea of them, horizon to horizon. Garcia and Kelly, who help manage this area for the Bureau of Land Management, step into a cluster of the flowers. We've got the facilia, the purple. We've got the gold fields, which are these. Bright yellow and petite. So these smaller flowers are the gold fields. And then these other ones are the hillsides daisies. And then the ones with the white, these are what, the tidy tips? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How many different types of flowers grow out here? There's so many. Hundreds of species between, between the flowers and the grasses and the plants. And right now, all of them are in rare form. There's no technical definition for the term super bloom. And really, there's no way to adequately describe it. It's breathtakingly beautiful and objectively sublime. It even sounds peaceful. This is one of the bright sides to California's monstrously wet winter. Places that just months ago were in extreme drought are now awash in water. So too, sadly, are towns, people, dairy farms, and almond orchards. You know, when we see water spread across the landscape as you're driving through the Central Valleys, you think of this as a really negative thing. Carson Jeffries is a researcher at the University of California, Davis's Center for Watershed Sciences. Yet there are so many benefits that happen because of it. For Jeffries, who focuses on salmon, the benefit is water-filled floodways, which provide roughly 100 times more fish food than a normal river. It is absolutely unbelievable the absolute gigantic fish that are coming off of the floodplains right now. They are some of the biggest, fattest fish we've ever seen anytime. Historically, before most of this region was engineered with dams and canals, California's Central Valley would flood frequently. Snowmelt from the mountains would spread out across the valley floor, 
coalescing in basins, and the few remaining wetlands on the landscape, like this one northeast of Bakersfield. You guys really letting us know, huh? Definitely. Matt Kaminsky is a biologist with Ducks Unlimited. Avocets and then black nets stilts, the ones with the roof its heads out there. This wetland sandwiched between a dairy farm and alfalfa fields is what's known as a duck club, an ecosystem maintained by conservation easements and duck hunters. The Central Valley is part of the Pacific Flyway, a major migratory path for waterfowl and birds. These are important staging grounds for these birds as they migrate through. In dry years, Kaminsky says, many of these wetland complexes don't receive any water from the spring runoff. Agriculture has a higher priority. So these wetlands are generally sustained by landowners pumping groundwater to the surface. This year, though, they're taking all of the water they can get, alleviating flood risks for nearby towns and farms. Driving in Kaminsky's truck along the top of a steep levee, he points to a breach in the canal wall. The crop fields behind are inundated with water and chirping birds. Years like this, he says, awful as they are for some, it really gives you an opportunity to look back in time and sort of see what, you know, this area used to look like. And he says there's a beauty in that, too. Nathan Rott, NPR News, California's Central Valley. And if you want to see photos of the superbloom and recharged wetlands, check out the story on NPR.org. Sedan's army has agreed to a three-day truce to fighting in and around the capital city, Khartoum. Earlier ceasefires between the army and the paramilitary rapid support forces over the past week have quickly collapsed, and there are signs this one may collapse as well. The U.S. is drawing up evacuation plans to get its embassy staff out of the country if the situation deteriorates further. The plans do not include American civilians, NPR's Jackie Northam reports. Fierce fighting between Sudan's warring factions has left hundreds of people dead. There are an increasing number of attacks against Westerners, UN personnel, aid workers, and diplomats. The State Department is sending out warnings to U.S. citizens in Sudan. Here's spokesperson Vedant Patel. We have been uh, very clear about the need to, for American citizens to remain indoors, to stay off the roads, to shelter in place, and to avoid traveling to the U.S. Embassy at this time. The State Department has set up a conflict task force for Sudan to deal with the crisis. That includes planning for an evacuation. It's been coordinating with the Pentagon, which has deployed more forces to nearby Djibouti. How to get embassy staff out is the issue. One option, if this ceasefire holds, is to arrange a convoy to go overland to Egypt. Another is by helicopter off the top of the embassy. This administration cannot have another botched American evacuation. Cameron Hudson is an East Africa specialist at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a former diplomat who covered Sudan. He says the specter of the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021 looms large, and the administration wants to make sure that doesn't happen again. I think that there's a lot of domestic politics at play here, right? Nobody in the department wants a, a situation where we actually have an American embassy itself under siege. And if one American diplomat dies in this country, then there's going to be, you know, serious hell to pay. And I think that the Biden administration understands that. The administration has also made clear that its focus is on embassy staff and U.S. citizens will have to make their own arrangements.
National Security Spokesperson John Kirby says the State Department has sent out numerous advisories telling American citizens not to travel to Sudan or to get out if they're already there. It is not standard practice for the United States to evacuate all American citizens living abroad. And, and again, uh, given all the warnings that we have, we have provided, there should be no expectation uh, that the United States would be able to facilitate uh, an evacuation using either military or commercial aircraft in a potentially non-permissive environment. There's an estimated 16,000 American citizens in Sudan, and the situation is growing desperate. There are shortages of food and water, and the security situation is increasingly precarious. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up on Marketplace this evening. While many big brands are closing stores and announcing layoffs, retailers including IKEA and Barnes & Noble are trying to expand. Marketplace starts at 6.30. WBUR supporters include Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness. Located in Littleton, Mass. More at SoaringHawkCenter.com. Stocks had a kind of lazy day today with little change by the end of the session. The Dow, the S&P, and NASDAQ all gained about a tenth of a percent. For the Dow, it was the end of a four-week winning streak. Florida's emergency management officials have terminated their contract with the Burlington Tech Company. The firm Everbridge manages emergency push alerts. Florida officials say the company made a mistake this week that caused a test emergency alert that was supposed to go out on TV stations to go out on cell phones instead in the middle of the night. Everbridge says it was an unfortunate human error and it regrets the inconvenience it caused. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. Big night for Boston sports fans. Bruins and Celtics get back to playoff action tonight. The Bees are in Florida to face the Panthers in Game 3 of their first-round playoff series. Series is tied 1-1. The Bruins will be without Captain Patrice Bergeron for the next two games. Celtics are in Atlanta to play the Hawks. Boston leads that series two games, 2-0. And the Red Sox open a three-game set out in Milwaukee tonight with the Brewers. 8-10 start time. This is 90.9 WBUR, partly cloudy overnight tonight. Look for clouds tomorrow, clouds and a lot of showers on Sunday. It's 6.20. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. WBUR supporters include Summer Term at Boston University, offering convenient day, evening, and online scheduling with courses open to working professionals and lifelong learners. Study education, communication, business, project management, computer science, the arts, film and TV, languages, literature, and more. Visit bu.edu summer. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Scott Detrow. The premise behind a smart gun is pretty simple. It uses technology similar to what's in your smartphone so that only a registered user can unlock the weapon and fire it. Developing a smart gun that works, though, has been tricky. But now a Colorado startup says it's bringing a smart gun to the market. NPR Justice correspondent Ryan Lucas looked into it and has this story, which, a quick warning, will include the sound of gunshots. 
The general idea of a smart gun has been around for decades. One even makes an appearance in the 2012 James Bond film, Skyfall. Also PPKS 9mm short. There's a microdermal sensor in the grip. It's been coded to your palm print so only you can fire it. There's the movies, though, and then there's the real world. And in the real world, the technological challenges, as well as some political ones, have meant that smart guns haven't become a reality. But that may be about to change, because a Colorado startup called BioFire says it has developed a viable and reliable smart gun for market. The company's founder and CEO is 26-year-old Kai Klepfer. The event that really kicked off my involvement in thinking about smart guns and thinking about how technology could be applied to gun safety was the Aurora Theater shooting. That shooting at a midnight screening of a Batman movie killed 12 people and wounded dozens more. Klepfer was 15 years old at the time and lived about a half-hour drive from Aurora. He says that back then, he knew about gun violence, but it had never hit so close to home. And so, as a kid with an interest in engineering, he wondered whether there was a technological solution that could help curb gun violence. I set it on a smart gun, which is basically, you know, a firearm that's always locked by default, but instantly accessible to the user. So Klepfer got to work trying to engineer one as a science fair project. Now, 11 years later, that science fair project has morphed into BioFire, a company with 40 employees and $30 million in venture capital funding. And last week, the company became the first to offer for sale a smart gun that uses biometrics, in this case, facial recognition and fingerprint verification, so that only a verified user can fire it. That journey from science fair project to firearms manufacturer has been a long one. At BioFire's headquarters outside Denver, there's a hallway that holds five illuminated glass cases, each holding a prototype of Klepfer's smart gun. This is a nice little kind of visual chronology of the different uh, like key milestones. Again, we've built hundreds of prototypes and hundreds of generations. And this is the science fair model. But, and this is the science fair model. So this is, this is actually It is, in fact, the, the final prototype from the science fair, he says. As you can tell, it's not actually a gun, right? Um, I wasn't allowed to work on firearms for the science fair. It would have gotten me kicked out, actually. Instead, he worked on what was basically a 3D-printed plastic model, one in the glass display case here. It looks like a plastic gun with the top half missing. But on the side of the gun grip, is his technological leap. That's the, the fingerprint yep. sensor right there. Big fingerprint the, sensor there on the side. If you look at that, it looks very kind of old school, right? Um, back in 2013, that was the state of the art, right? That was the best fingerprint sensor you could buy. In Klepfer's own telling, that science fair model barely worked. But the engineering and analysis that went into it still won him first place at an international science fair in engineering. He spent some of his prize winnings on a bicycle. He was, after all, still just a high school kid. But he kept tinkering away on his smart gun idea. And with $50,000 in grant money, he managed to engineer a new prototype, one that actually fired. What he did, in essence, was meld a fingerprint sensor onto the grip of a Glock handgun. It was rudimentary, and it wasn't reliable, but it did work for the most part. It was very clear that taking Glocks and buying off-the-shelf firearms and drilling holes in them uh, is not a good way to build a reliable product. After a short stint at MIT, Klepfer dropped out to focus on biofire. His team designed and built hundreds of prototypes as they tried to meld old-school gunsmithing with the latest in cutting-edge electronics. And it's here at its Colorado headquarters, in a nondescript office building off a highway, that it now does all of its research and development and testing. So these over here, these are our thermal chambers. Um, and so basically both of these, uh, what they allow us to do is simulate all sorts of different environmental conditions uh, without having to actually go to those different environments, right? So. If that sort of testing is critical really to ensure that a gun loaded with electronics works in a hot and humid environment, as well as in the rain or the freezing cold. Hey guys. 
through a door, there's a machine shop. Dave here is our operator who's in charge of this piece of equipment. I'm not allowed to touch it or even look at it funny because I might break it. But this lets us do like complex like machining operations, like manufacturing slides and barrels, uh, largely in-house. The machine looks like a giant metal booth with two small sliding glass doors. Inside, small hoses spray coolant as the machine whittles a gun stock down to the precise size. Out back in the company's in-house firing range, Klepfer sets a heavy-duty black plastic case on a table. He opens it and takes out the latest model of BioFire smart gun. It looks like a handgun, but one out of a futuristic movie. On the grip, right where your middle finger rests when holding the gun, is a small fingerprint sensor. And on the back is a 3D facial recognition sensor. Having both biometrics, Klepfer says, makes it more reliable. The two combined work in pretty much any environmental conditions, any environment, any grip style, things like that. In this demo, Klepfer is the only person authorized to use the gun. As soon as he picks it up, a green light on the sight and on the back of the gun turns on, letting him know that it recognizes him and is unlocked. So, pretty simple. Uh, this is a BioFire magazine. Uh, it works just like any other magazine. Um, so, I'll load the firearm here. So the firearm is now loaded. You'll see, even as I was starting to handle that, it had already unlocked. And so, I get up on target, So you just fired it. I just fired it, yep. You're the only registered user. I am not registered to it. I'm not an authorized user, but I'm gonna walk over to it and see if this works. So I'm walking over to it, pick it up. It recognizes that someone's touching it, but the white light is on, it's not green. I point it down range. I pull the trigger and nothing. Okay, set it back down. And then I can pick this right back up if you wanna see that. Yeah. And then, again, it'll go green, obviously. The gun holds a charge for months, he says, and it comes with a smart screen charging dock, which is also how you add authorized users. Previous attempts at a reliable smart gun have failed. Smith & Wesson, for example, started its smart gun development years ago in the face of fierce NRA-led opposition. The NRA, for the record, doesn't oppose smart guns. It opposes anything that would mandate smart gun technology. A German company called Armatex brought a gun to market in 2014 that used a radio frequency watch to unlock the weapon, but it faced technical troubles as well as political blowback. This time may be different, says Nick Suplina from the gun control group Everytown. He's seen the BioFire smart gun in action, and he says it does what previous attempts at a smart gun have not. It works. But he cautions that smart guns also aren't going to end the epidemic of gun violence in America. Even if widely introduced, smart guns only solve part of the problem of gun violence in the United States. One thing that they could help with, though, is preventing unintentional shootings involving children. Firearms are now the leading cause of death among children and teens. A smart gun would prevent a child from successfully firing uh, a weapon that they're not authorized uh, to access. And, and that's really a, a promising development. Smart guns could also help tamp down on accidents and suicides, the latter of which makes up more than half of all gun deaths in the U.S. each year. For his part, Klepfer acknowledges that his smart gun wouldn't have prevented the mass shooting in Aurora more than a decade ago, or more recent ones in Tennessee and Kentucky. There are no total solutions, he says. My goal is I want to have an incremental positive impact on sort of the uniquely American challenge of, of gun deaths. He thinks his smart gun can do just that. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, outside Denver, Colorado. This is NPR News.
Start your weekend here tomorrow morning on WBUR. We'll have the latest on Supreme Court decision expected this evening on the availability of the abortion drug mifepristone. Also, some new ideas from a group of congressional lawmakers for raising the debt ceiling. The news right here on WBUR when you wake up tomorrow. A few clouds around overnight tonight, down in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, heavy on the clouds. Windy, about as mild as today was in the mid-50s. Sunday, showers, a steady rain in the afternoon, again in the mid-50s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by BU School of Theater and College of Communication, taking audiences behind the scenes of an original TV comedy pilot, April 27th to May 6th. More at bu.edu CFA. And Native Plant Trust, welcoming spring at Garden in the Woods in Framingham. Now open, the beauty of native plants in a dramatic landscape. Information at nativeplanttrust.org.